Hello and welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast. Final day recap of the 2020-2021 regular season. We now know who has been automatically promoted. We know our playoff semi-final fixtures. We think we know who has been relegated, but maybe not. And more on that later. We are... Ali Maxwell and George Ellick. We had a hell of a weekend following these three glorious, crazy leagues to their finish. And we've got plenty to talk about. George, shall we start with the championship? And let's start with the relegation battle, which was probably the most exciting part of the whole weekend. I should say that this podcast will very specifically focus on the major talking points from final day and the fallout for the teams involved. Any of that fun in the sun beach football action will be maybe touched on, but not in depth. And the playoffs will be previewed in depth in the second half of the week on this podcast feed. So we will not be doing any in-depth playoff preview content, but we will, of course, tell you who is playing who ahead of that preview show later on this week that we're really, really excited about. But we've got more than enough to talk about just in terms of final weekend drama. George, we were in at Sky Sports News. We were on air from 7 till 10, breaking down everything that happened in the Championship and League 2. But it meant we were in early for those 12.30 kickoffs. And that really was the best part of the weekend in terms of drama. Yeah, I mean, it was incredible. Um, On these final days... Quite often, there's a lot of build-up. It's a bit like, you know, at the Sky Sports News, quite often, you know, you build up to it. It's all very exciting, a bit like deadline day. And then a bit like League Two, you suddenly realise that you were kind of willing drama rather than actually there was much chance of it happening. But in the championship, it was amazing. All three teams who had a realistic chance of getting in, well, of staying up at one point were staying up, even if for Sheffield Wednesday it was about eight seconds as, as Waggers were standing over the penalty. I think we worked it out in at Quest on Sunday, looking back. I believe it was something, it was either 15 seconds or 18 seconds between Cardiff's goal that made it 1-1 against Rotherham, which had Sheffield Wednesday up as it stood. But of course, they'd already given away that penalty, which Waghorn scored to make it 3-3. So either 15 or 18 seconds out of that 100 minutes or so that Wednesday was safe. And I I was watching the um, Derby game live, but then we could hear in the studio people who were watching. So obviously there's a delay with the feeds and things. And from what I can tell, I'm pretty sure the penalty was given before the Lewis, uh, sorry, before the Marlon Pack goal. Yeah, correct. And then was taken after. So, I mean, that was... Yeah, it was incredible. And the, and the funny thing was, because the Wednesday derby game was delayed by about 10 minutes, yeah. it kind of didn't really feel like the pack goal was an 89th minute equaliser because we still knew there was 10 more minutes left in the other game. So suddenly when you realise, oh my God, it's, it's injury time, this is absolute heartbreak for Rotherham. Um, yeah, I mean, it was incredibly dramatic. And as you mentioned, we think or we thought we knew that it was derby who were going to be safe. But at the time of recording, because we better date stamp this, because this could age very, very quickly. It's 5 to 12 on on Monday morning. Um, there are a lot of reports flying around. Um, Craig Hope from the Daily Mail has, has uh, posted a story saying that, that the EFL's appeal against uh, Derby uh, and the findings um, from, from kind of before the season um, has been upheld, which means that there is a chance that Derby could be sanctioned to be relegated John Percy from the Telegraph who is the oracle of all things um, kind of Midlands football 
has just tweeted saying that 10 days ago he heard about this and contacted Derby and Derby threatened uh, the Telegraph with legal action if they printed it. So this has obviously been rumbling on, rumbling on for a while. Derby doing everything they could to prevent it coming out. Just to give a little more information from that mail piece, because these these issues between Derby and the EFL and Sheffield Wednesday and the EFL, they can be quite complicated. A lot of people know that part of them is linked to the sale of their stadia to their owners in order to essentially raise funds and therefore not be um, not be punished for missing the profit and sustainability or FFP rules uh, in the championship. Now, this specific appeal by the EFL pertains to the second charge that was brought against Derby, not the sale of their stadium and anything to do with that, but actually... And I'm going to quote the piece here. It says, Derby avoided a possible points deduction last August when an independent disciplinary commission cleared them of breaching FFP rules after the EFL brought two charges against them. But the EFL appealed against that decision and we can reveal they have won on the grounds of player valuation. We are told that Derby, owned by Mel Morris, did not follow accepted practice by including the depreciation of player assets in their accounts. That is otherwise known as amortization and anyone who listens to Kieran Maguire's Price of Football podcast or has read his book which if you haven't and you listen to this podcast is a huge oversight uh, will know what that means Uh, sources say that removed losses in excess of 30 million pounds over a three-year period this latest development leaves the future of the club in even greater doubt with Morris desperate to sell Spanish businessman Eric Alonso has agreed a deal to buy the club, but he has so far been unable to produce funds. I mean, we've kind of moved away from the drama of final day already, and I think we'll get back to it, George, because there's more to say. But this is very, very significant in terms of what might happen over the next few weeks. It feels a bit like last season where we finished the season with clubs, specifically Macclesfield Town in League Two, still with this sort of thing hanging over them and it can get very messy very quickly it can it can and, and you know the the interesting thing to this for those people who maybe didn't follow um saturday too closely you might assume that sheffield wednesday or rotherham will profit from this but from our understanding and given the way that the league table works it's wickham who finished the the season in 22nd place who finished the season one point off derby in the closest team to them so if derby were to be relegated you know, it's Wickham who are now on tenterhooks as to whether or not, or not there'll be a championship team next season. Given all the speculation around Gareth Ainsworth and a possible move to Preston, um, you've got to wonder what impact this is going to have because I'd be pretty surprised if he would make that move if there was a chance that he could be taking Wickham into a championship campaign next season. Um, so I guess all coverage and everything we're going to talk about in terms of how Derby are set for next season in the championship and how Wickham are set for next season in League One has to come with an asterisk because we don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case. I mean, it might well be that, you know, when you're listening to this um, on Tuesday afternoon, this story has gone and it's, you know, it's all tied up. But at the time of recording, we have to mention it because um, it could easily all unravel uh, over the course of this week. Let's try and get back to some more footballing matters, really, because, well, firstly, I need to, I, I think the listeners will be probably quite amused to hear that we had just got into Sky Sports News. It's the first time we've worked with this specific team and new colleagues. The, the, the newsroom where you sit and experience the games is 10 metres from the studio itself, the set itself. And I really lost track of myself because when Lewis Wing 
volleyed the ball out of the sky, having been headed, what, 10, 15 metres up in the air, caught it so sweetly and it nestled in the bottom corner after 10 or so minutes of that Rotherham-Cardiff game. I let out a yelp that was quite unprofessional, to be honest, and George turned a lot of heads in that newsroom. I had to keep a bit of a low profile out of that. It was a magnificent goal. It was Lewis Wing all over. I immediately went on his Who Scored page where you can see how many total shots he's had in his career, which spans the last four years or so. 160, approximately, 135 from outside the box, which is, I mean, almost 90% of all of his shots. Now, we have criticised him at time, uh, at times for taking too many shots from poor locations and not offering enough in terms of creative passing, etc. But at that point, we thought a Lewis wing, long-range volley might have saved Rotherham. And had they held on, it would have. Now, Marlon Pack's goal, if you watch the reverse angle, you will see Matt Crooks in the background, about 20 yards behind Marlon Pack, with his head in his hands as Pack runs onto the ball before he's even struck it. And there's an element to Rotherham's relegation, George, that feels like something pre-written, like a sort of myth and legend or some sort of classical history where it was just doomed to happen. And, and that image of Matt Crooks holding his head in his hands kind of summed it up, I think, because... As we've said many times over the last few weeks, they miss chances to go two up. Now, I look at the Y Scout XG for this game, 2.28 to Rotherham, 0.58 for Cardiff, the one-all draw, and it really sums it up, I'm afraid. If you look at Sofa Score, which is a really good statistics website, in the last 10 games alone, Rotherham missed 13 big chances. I don't know exactly how a big chance is defined, but if it uses the Opta definition, you know, they don't give those out like sweets statistically. And that really sums it up. And and that's why, getting back to Derby and Sheffield Wednesday, one of the many reasons why over the course of the weekend, I've almost been getting angrier and angrier about any suggestion that Derby have succeeded here by staying up. I understand why the players celebrated like they did. I would have done the exact same thing. I even understand why Martin Waghorn, who's been criticised for some of the things he said post-match, most notably, this is the sort of thing, you know, this is why we play, this is what we play for, and trying to claim that they'd achieved some crazy success when obviously they hadn't. I kind of understand that all in the heat of the moment. But any suggestion that they should get a lot of credit, either off the pitch or on it, I think is missing the mark. So it's a bit of a weird one, because normally you'd be celebrating the team that achieved survival. It feels like we're not really doing that for Derby County. It is hard. You, you you would know why the players would certainly feel a sense of achievement because even though it's their poor performances that have, have led to their position in the table, they were on a football pitch on Saturday afternoon getting relegated and their actions prevented that, yeah. at least from what we know at the moment, from that happening. I think maybe the lack of fans in the stadium will probably add to that because... Derby County finishing 21st of 24 this season without any fans there is a very different experience for the players from Derby County finishing 21st out of 24th with a full stadium or probably not very full by the end of the season um, because the fans would have made their feelings very much known and I guess being in that I guess it's a bit of an echo chamber when there aren't fans there within the club and the group Um, so yeah we can't give them any credit they have profited from a combination of things they profited from Rotherham's inability to um, put the ball in the back of the net over the last 10 or so games. Uh, They profited from Sheffield Wednesday getting a points deduction where they didn't. They profited from when they played against Wickham in what now looks like a pretty pivotal game a couple of of months ago um, when 
Wickham were on the receiving end of some interesting refereeing decisions. You know, Horgan scored when he was a mile on side. They scored in the very last minute. If that goes differently, it goes against them. I mean, there are obviously going to be times in the season where Derby fans will say, sorry, you know, we deserve more here and that's fine. But this is a very, very tight relegation battle where Derby have just about come out on top and not really by anything they've done themselves. You know, of course, the, the form turned around when Koku left. Yeah, I was just going to point out that Derby's best spell and the only credit they get really in terms of what they did on the pitch was three months between the end of November and the end of February. Over 18 games, they had the seventh best record in yeah. the league at that time. And that and that's what's kept them up um, in terms of what they've done themselves. But when you go on a run of one win and 14 uh, to, to finish the season, one point outside the relegation zone, um, with all that kind of caveats that I've just mentioned... <laughs> You know, we were asked on Sky Sports News, is Wayne Rooney a good manager? I mean, we, we cannot say definitively now. And as I mentioned then, I do think because it's Rooney and because it's somebody who we all know so well as a footballer and as a person, it feels like there's a, a real willingness to, to try and make sweeping judgments on him. And I probably fell into that trap initially because I gave him a lot of credit when, when that form was good early on. But the fact is that he's somebody who's never managed a football team before, who came into a side halfway through the season, a squad that he's had a, basically no influence in, in putting together. So I think we can't judge him on that. But on the balance of what we've seen over the course of the season, you know, there's not much evidence to suggest that he's 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 good or bad. Um, maybe not much evidence to suggest he's good. And again, if Rotherham had, had held on to that lead, both teams on the pitch at Pride Park would have been relegated. That could have been one of the most iconic images in, in EFL history. I, I must admit, this game was the most perfect distillation of these two football teams this season. I would say they are as bad as each other. I know that if you take out Sheffield Wednesday's points deduction, they would be on, uh, what, 47 points compared to Derby's 44. So over the course of the season, Sheffield Wednesday, the slightly better side. But they were as bad as each other in this game. It reminded me a bit of the stepbrothers scene where they have the most ridiculous fight and then end up knocking each other out at the same time. Mm. Uh, and, <laughs> and that was kind of like this. Like, what happens when a team that can't win from behind plays a team that can't hold on to leads? Well, what happens is... Both teams come from behind in the game and both teams give away leads in the game and they end up drawing 3-3. There's, no, there's almost no analysis you can do with the game itself because Derby were probably good for a total of about 10 minutes, uh, a five-minute period where they went from 1-0 down to 2-1 uh, to up. And then in fairness, a five-minute period at the end where Curtis Davis playing on one leg against medical advice came on and made one particularly big header. A couple of other defenders made some big-headed clearances and, and that was what they needed at that time. But Sheffield Wednesday equally were, were pretty poor. I mean, <laughs> there's not even any point discussing whether goals were offside or not offside. Waghorn ends up the hero, a game where I think he made maybe five total passes, but scored two goals. He ends up with five goals for the season, Waghorn. Two of them free kicks, one of them a penalty, and two goals from open play. And the most mad thing is, he missed a chance from two yards out in early on in the game, smashed himself on the post. Yeah. And I think anyone, you know, I'm going to be the first to admit, 
I do not know all the rules around the concussion protocol and I'm not here to say he should never have played on because I, I don't know much about concussion compared to team doctors and I don't even know the exact rules um, as to when a player is kind of obliged to come off or not. But put it this way, you know, I don't mean to make light of head injuries, but I did, fi- I did think the line afterwards of Waghorn has a game that he'll never forget and potentially won't even remember tomorrow morning. Yeah. You couldn't get away from that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I guess, the, the, you know, as you say, it's the key story, uh, especially as I don't think anybody expected him to carry on playing after he was polaxed um, on the post. And, you know, for him, he's somebody that I interviewed a couple of years ago and he was probably one of the nicest footballers I've ever met. Um, and everybody who seems to know anything about him seems to say the same. So, I mean, delighted for him. There's always going to be a hero. You mentioned we can't talk about the offsides and that's fine. I do think given that I've just mentioned areas where Derby have maybe been fortunate, we should probably just say yes, on the day they were on the receiving end of some bad luck and managed to overcome that because I do think both... Wednesday, well, two of Wednesday's three goals did look offside. Um, And it's just a classic, you know, this is such a classic case of both teams go in at nil-nil at half-time, learn that Rotherham are winning, realise that a draw doesn't do anyone any good, and then there are six goals, and basically whoever's ahead. (laughs) It was 1-0 at half-time. 1-0. scored 95 plus three. Yes, okay. Um, 45 plus three. Yeah, sorry, Um, 45 plus three. 95 plus three would be 98. Um, So it's just as soon as both teams realised what was going on. Um, and, you know, there are, you know, Waghorn coming down and having scored two goals and, and getting booked on the, on the sideline for telling the players to calm down. You know, they're all kind of iconic last day images, even if, um, yeah, even if it wasn't the kind of, you know, if you told Derby fans pre-season that Martin Waghorn was going to be the hero and he was going to, all this stuff was going to happen, they probably would have been hoping it was going to be um, for at the top end of the table rather than, than to avoid getting relegated. Um, so going to be really interesting. But we can't, you know, we can't speculate on what's going to happen next season um, for Derby because we just have absolutely no idea about anything. We don't know what league they're going to be playing in still. We don't know who the owners are going to be. We don't know if Wayne Rooney is still going to be there. We have no idea of their financial situation. Um, so let's leave that, I guess, to another time. Okay. I'd like to talk about Sheffield Wednesday briefly, if I may, because I think there is a general sense of sympathy towards Rotherham. And boy, have we discussed Rotherham a lot over the last few weeks because they they were the key players, you have to say, in the relegation battle with all those games in hand and and all those chances that they didn't take. Paul Warren with a very emotional post-match interview. Um, As ever, I think we should applaud Paul Warren showing his emotions openly. I think that the, the way that he does that is very, very important. Uh, And I think that it it actually lends itself maybe against old school football stereotypes of manhood and manning up. I think it's actually part of a a management skill that he has, which we know has worked very well for this Rotherham side. And I don't see relegation as a huge failure, even though they were so close to staying up. There's sympathy towards Wickham and we're going to touch on them in a second. Sympathy, I should say, if they are the team that that get relegated, depending on what happens with Derby. But much of my emotions around Sheffield Wednesday is anger. There's sympathy for the fans, of course, but where I have sympathy for those that run Wickham and Rotherham uh, and and the players and staff, with Wednesday, there's sympathy towards the players and staff to an extent. There's a lot of sympathy towards the fans and there's a huge amount of anger towards their owner, Dejvon Chanziri. Of course, it's, it's 
the fact that there weren't a huge amount of differences between what Sheffield Wednesday did and what Derby did with their stadia. And of course, there were unique circumstances with both. But the key here, as Peter Lerman, who is a Sheffield Wednesday fan, who we follow on Twitter, says, the key difference and the reason that Sheffield Wednesday were deducted points and not Derby was essentially just negligence, just a botched attempt at doing what Derby did. So this is what Peter said on Twitter. If Chanziri had signed off and sent terms for the sale and lease back of Hillsborough to the EFL by July the 31st, 2018, we wouldn't have been relegated today, by which he means we wouldn't have had a points deduction just like Derby didn't have a points deduction. And that's just one example of how Chanziri's ownership has, has negatively impacted the club because the on-the-pitch stuff comes back to him as well. We've been talking about him as Sheffield Wednesday owner since we started doing the podcast. And when we started doing the podcast, Sheffield Wednesday had lost in the playoff final to Hull City. They made the playoffs the next year and they lost on penalties in the semi-final. Even then, we were concerned about not just the level of spending, which Chanziri was being applauded for in some circles, you know, ambitious owner pouring his own personal money into the club in order to get them back to the Premier League where they belonged. But it seemed pretty clear that he wasn't doing it in a very sustainable way. It seemed pretty clear that he was gambling that they would win promotion and that if they didn't achieve that, there would be much larger and potentially existential issues for the club if they failed, which they did. And so over the last three years, I would say, we have watched that come home to roost. Terrible recruitment, wasted millions of pounds and brought very little in in player, sa in player sales. No strategy whatsoever when it came to the hiring and firing of managers, which we know over the long term hurts a club in the EFL. They've had three transfer embargoes over the last three years. The first one was in 2018. This isn't something new for Wednesday. Now, the problem is that now, partially due to COVID, I'm sure, it appears that he's finding it difficult to sustain those costs. So while he would have said, don't worry about me spending loads of money, guys. This is my money and I can spend it. Now we get in that situation, which we've seen before, where... He can't, it appears, I should say, that he can't do that anymore because there's been reports that there's been alleged late payment of wages in March and April. And of course, those ring alarm bells and it's not the first time. It's a club that operates at a huge loss and it's his fault that the points deduction came in the first place. So they moved down to League One and I'm really, really worried. And I, I hope, to be honest, that he understands the problems that he has caused and goes some way to rectifying them. And if there's no suggestion that he's doing that, I'm sure that Sheffield Wednesday fans will mobilise here like we have seen fans do in the past and try and find a way that they can make sure that he doesn't run the club to ruin because we've seen that happen with other clubs before and we would hate to see that happen again. So it all comes back to him for me, uh, a lack of strategy and a lack of care being shown um, uh, to, to do the job that he has, which is as custodian of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a, an old and great football club. Now, if you want more detail about how Chanziri runs the club and why I would say that there's a clear lack of coherent strategy, Nancy Frostick, who covers Sheffield Wednesday for The Athletic, put up a piece just after full-time on Saturday. It details pretty much everything you could want to know about how Chanziri runs the club, who he asks to advise him, and maybe more specifically, who he hasn't asked to advise him over the last few years. Um, and it's really, really interesting. It's worth a read. So theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20 is the place to go if you'd like to sign up to The Athletic and read that piece. You can sign up 
with a 50% discount, £2.50 a month. Uh, I know, George, that Ryan Conway has written a brilliant piece breaking down a bit of Derby County as well. So theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20. We're going to talk about Rotherham briefly now, George. Uh, they beat Borough 3-0 on final day. They needed to win 14-0. Uh, and as it was, that wouldn't have been enough anyway uh, in terms of points. This prompted a tweet from you that really melted the EFL internet, I would say, and caused some very creative abuse from fans of your own club, uh, Oxford United. So you said, Wickham leave the championship with more than just credit. Performance levels way above where they were last season. And they fall short having been on the receiving end of some consistent bad luck early in the season. They won't get the second crack at the championship that they deserve. What do you say now, uh, 48 hours or so later? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, most of the... um vitriol seemed to come from either Peterborough fans unsurprising you know they feel like (laughs) you know it's amazing how the narrative over the year changes where you've got people saying you know Wickham were in free fall Wickham won five of their last nine games last season before the the season was curtailed yes they were eighth they had a game in hand yes it was against Coventry win that game in hand their third I mean there's just so much revisionism over what, what Wickham were would they have got into the playoffs if I was a I can have a bet I'd say probably not but we got to the stage in the season where we had to do something and it's amusing how many people seem to prescribe to the idea that the, the table doesn't lie but it did last season when they had to work out who was where on points per game um, well especially because some people would say <laughs> the table doesn't lie after 46 games yeah. there's a sort of acceptance that there's been enough football played at that point that most of the lies would have been ironed out over the course of the season. But of course, that wasn't the case last year. They hadn't played that many games. It's just, you know, it's critical thought. Like there's so many things about the league table that is so arbitrary. You know, this is the game. This is the sport. This is the competition. I'm not arguing with that. The most important thing you can do is finish in the automatic spots, win the league, finish outside the relegation zone, whatever. I'm not in any way disputing that. But all the things in football, you know, like they're, Three points for a win, one point for a draw, none for a loss. Like that is literally a decision someone has made to attribute to um, to a season. You know, the the ninety minutes, a game being ninety minutes, is something that was decided. You know, there there are so many different aspects to a team's quality that go beyond the parameters of the game as we know it. And to just <laughs> to like look at football as being absolute and be like where you finish is where you deserve to finish is just lacks an extra kind of thinking level. And I would always think, you know, look at who you're with in the trenches. If you're next to people who literally look at a league table and are happy to do so, or you're next to any professional gambler who's worth his merit, whose job it is is to analyse this, who should, they should believe, I'm not saying I'm one of these people, but they should believe they've got a model which is a, a more accurate, um, a more accurate determination of a team's quality when you take out the variance that comes with refereeing decisions and all these other things you know 46 games isn't very long and the and also the idea that luck will you reverse itself over the course of the season is absolute nonsense like why (laughs) over 46 games why should your luck balance itself out if you're on the receiving end of three refereeing decisions in the 91st minutes of games which are wrong and go against you and cost you points there is no divine you know right that later on in that season you don't walk off the pitch being like it's alright we'll get another one of those soon yeah. like, that's just not how it works it might happen can't wait for injury time next week. yeah exactly if it's a thousand games then maybe and people just seem to get really angry about this and I, I kind of find it amazing how many people are so happy to to just accept what the season looks like at the end you know so 
and posh fans, I can understand. Oxford fans, I was pretty surprised. I mean, I, mean, quite, I don't want to give away any spoilers for the League One section, but I did find it amusing that one or two of the responses were, but they were in the relegation places for the whole season, so they deserve to get relegated. And by that token, Oxford United, who spent basically less than 90 minutes in the League yeah. One playoff picture, but made it on final day... Does that mean they don't really deserve to be in the playoffs? It's, it's bizarre. And, you know, people ask that as well. And, you know, the difference is Oxford's, in, in my opinion, and all this is opinions as well. You know, people are, are, are very welcome to um, to disagree with me. Although I would say they, they're welcome to disagree with my opinion on Wickham. Disagreeing with the notion that the league table isn't an, abs- isn't an absolutely definitive proof of a team's quality, I just... Not uh, for you. Not for me, that. Okay. But anyway, but... Let's get let's try and get this back on track, shall we? Yeah, but just quickly on... Because all I wanted to say, a last point, because it is, you know, there's something a little bit sad um, about fans of your own team saying nasty things to you. Not that it... You know, I'm not one to get upset by abuse, but it's because it's Oxford fans. It's a bit of a shame. I don't... It, it seems to be out of some perception that there's a rivalry between Oxford and Wickham, and I, you know, I, I disagree. You've not lived that one yourself. Well, I mean... Before my life supporting Oxford, Wickham were a non-league side, and in the time that we've been playing against them over the last fifteen years, like they beat us in the playoff final last year, completely justifiably. Like we can't, there was no injustice there, in my opinion. Um, and I hope that in the future, um, you know, Swindon are our rivals. That's it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fussed by them just because they their ground's quite close to our ground. They did give themselves a lot to do this season because they lost their first seven games. They only won two of their first 21. And, you know, there were times where they were a very poor team for the level, but they finished it not looking like that at all. And, you know, I think Ainsworth's Ainsworth, Ainsworth's outward public management style here, I had a bit of a love-hate relationship throughout this season because at times I would watch his post-match interviews where he kept saying... You know, this is crazy. We're Wickham in the championship. It's amazing. <laughs> like, it's incredible. And I think I'd love it if your team were just a little bit more competitive and maybe there'd be, I guess what I wanted as someone who likes analysing the game where possible was a bit of a more critical eye and he didn't really give it very often. Then there were times where I loved it and I thought it was brilliant and I thought it was a breath of fresh air. And that's basically how I finished the season. And also, I think... Now I understand the method to the madness. How many times have we seen a team halfway through the season with no chance of survival, down tools, give up, sack the manager, all the players get abuse, they move on in the summer, you go down to League One, you've got a new manager and you have you, you have no more foundations, basically. That wasn't the case here at all. And I think looking back, the way that he managed expectations and the way that he used his personality for a positive or in a positive manner I think had a huge impact on how they finished the season and if he stays for next season makes me much more confident that they can bounce back up even though I don't think they will be a team that necessarily dominates games in League One if they can keep Ikpiazu I'll be I'll be really interested to see how they go as well as Ainsworth next season because I think he's been crucial and maybe not spoken about enough he didn't play basically any minutes in the first half of the season Ikpiazu and given how perfect he was for their style of play and the fact that he was championship quality, which we didn't know when he signed because he his goal return at Hearts was poor. His goal return even in League Two previously wasn't amazing. But had he been fit for the whole season, I think they'd have picked up more points. And, you know, there's a lot of ifs and buts, but I think it could have been pretty interesting indeed. Yeah, as as somebody who supports a team who'll probably be in League One next season, uh, I definitely think that if, if Ainsworth stays, they're, they're going to be 
very, very difficult. As long as he's there, they're going to be hard to break down. They're going to, they seem to to know how to create chances pretty consistently, despite never really having the ball. Um, they have punched massively above their weight this season. I know that their goal difference is minus 30. I mean, nearly a third of that is taken up by that game against Brentford. Um, they they basically had to be a bit better defensively. Than yeah, they, they did. I mean, but in the first half of the season, you know, they what was it? They lost, They won three of their first 25 games. Um, but there were so many drop points there. Um, it just, yeah, it, they were they were undeniably unlucky at times in terms of decisions. And that has ended up costing them. But what I would say, though, to caveat that, is I do think that sense of injustice that they felt has been a massive had a kind of a positive impact on their season, I guess. You know, we often see that that siege mentality where Ainsworth was consistently saying in his post-match interviews, this is happening the whole time. There's nothing we can do about it. All we can do is go and... And it almost felt like their performance levels increased as they felt more let down by what was going on from those in front of them. It's going to be... If they're in, if they're in League One next season, I still have a feeling Ainsworth won't be there, but we'll see. We know the playoff fixtures... And we've got a really in-depth preview coming in the second half of this week. One episode for each division. We're going to go as deep as we possibly can on the greatest invention in the sport, which is the EFL playoffs. But we know who it will be, George, because Brentford won. Uh, they will play Bournemouth, who lost to Stoke 2-0. Three defeats to finish the season for Bournemouth. Uh, Swansea also lost to Watford and Barnsley drew with Norwich. So it means Brentford will play Bournemouth. The first leg is next Monday at 6pm and that'll be followed by Swansea against Barnsley, the first leg uh, at 8.15pm. Again, I don't really want to give too much away here, but we know what the fixtures are. Do you have any thoughts on how this one shook out? I just think Barnsley will be the happiest side. Well, I mean, Swansea will be too, but I think Barnsley, in my view, are the winners here because they're playing against the team who I consider to be over the past... So you mean the winners of the playoffs? No, no, no. The winners of how it's all fallen. I think Swansea have been the weakest of the four teams over the last 12 weeks. Uh, and Barnsley playing them is is an advantage. It's, uh, and personally, from like a from a, a viewpoint of, of covering it and who I want to see in the final, I, I like the fact that one of Barnsley or Swansea will be mm. in the final. I think that's fun. Notes from the beach on final day in the championship. Well, Adam Armstrong scored a hat-trick for Blackburn against Birmingham. They won 5-2. That takes him to 28 goals in total. But crucially, and I touched on this last week, it won him the non-penalty goals golden boot. And that is the real quiz. This is the real quiz. Well done, Adam. Uh, the best at scoring goals in general play. 23 nice. for him, 22 for Tony, and 21 for Temu Puki. Adam Armstrong's uh, summer will be very interesting to follow. How much interest from above? That's the big question. Preston made it four wins to finish the season. Fun time Frankie McAvoy really putting the pressure on the board there with his uh, results as caretaker. And again, uh, TBC on whether they will pull the caretaker manager good short-term spell trigger or whether they will uh, stick to their guns and, and look for perhaps a, 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 a different option. Coventry won 6-1. That means they finished 16th in the table, George. And huge credit, firstly, in the short term for what they did to pull themselves away from any relegation scrap. But also, I think it's time to uh, press the Mark Robbins love button, which we've pressed quite a lot over the last three or four I think, years. I think it's worn out, isn't it? <laughs> um, they, yeah, It's an amazing achievement 
Um, I haven't got the numbers to hand, uh, but anybody, you know, you can go back and read the piece I wrote a couple of years ago um, on the gap between League One and and the Championship because it hasn't really changed. Uh, it's very, very difficult to consolidate your place in the Championship after after getting promotion. Uh, most teams go back down and most teams definitely go back down after two seasons. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens next campaign. I'm really excited to see their, their the recruitment as well. Yeah, which, you know, from a footballing point of view, might not be the best thing given how good they were at St Andrews. But um, I'm, in- I'm intrigued to see who they're going to bring in because we know that they've got a very, very strong recruitment network. Uh, we know they have cash to buy the right players. You know, you, l- you look at the outlay for Gustavo Harmer uh, in the summer, over a million pounds for a team coming out of the League One who've had some pretty bad, well, some really bad um, ownership issues and financial issues in the last decade or so. So they're definitely a team that I am really excited to see what they do because everything kind of feels geared towards them maybe kicking on even further rather than being a side who look to um to avoid I mean next season right now the aim is to avoid relegation again let's not mistake that but they do feel like a side that if you're looking for a dark horse for a team who could surprise the party uh, if they recruit well and keep key players they they could definitely be that I bet Mark Robbins hates a surprise party though do you Just think as so? a side note. I reckon yeah, he loves yeah. a beer. No, he wants to be in control. Uh, three years ago today, they were prepping for the League Two playoff semi-finals, Coventry. We're talking about them as the, the 16th best team in the championship. QPR finished ninth, uh, winning four of their last five, playing some really good stuff. Big Ilias enjoyed final day. Uh, I'm fascinated to watch QPR this summer as well. There's so many teams that when we take our little break, as we're going to do um, for the majority of June and, and maybe the start of July, I'm going to be sitting back on on a sort of very metaphorical deck chair because I won't really be traveling anywhere and I'm going to be watching a few teams with interest and not having to comment three times a week but just watching and, and waiting for those pre-season predictions so here's the final league table in the championship firstly thank you to everyone who listens to this pod has done every week and has listened to us bang on about all of these teams uh, so much speculation throughout the season we're constantly updating our predictions and ratings and wondering who will finish where and as they say after 46 games the league table it can't lie how could it lie after 46 games this is the final league table Norwich and Watford one and two Brentford Swansea Barnsley Bournemouth making up the rest of the top six then Reading in seventh Cardiff QPR Middlesbrough in 10th Millwall and Luton round off the top half and then the bottom half Preston North End followed by Stoke City then Blackburn Rovers and Coventry Nottingham Forest in 17th with Birmingham in 18th Bristol City, 19th, Huddersfield, 20th, Derby, 21st, and then Wickham, Rotherham, Sheffield Wednesday in the bottom three places as we record, but potentially still some off-field drama in that one. Let's talk about the League One final day, which was on at Sunday, midday kickoff, and there was a bit of drama in this one. We'll get on to League Two in a second, which uh, was kind of as was by the end of the day, but League One, we did have a bit of uh, movement. And it pertains to your team, Oxford United. Uh, We've kind of touched on them a bit over the last few weeks because they've been having some entertaining games and picking up a lot of wins. But I'm always wary of us slash you being accused of talking about Oxford United too much. But you've got free reign today. It was the only thing that happened. Uh, You got free reign today, George. (laughs) How did you live this one, first and foremost? Um, Yeah, I watched it sitting outside um, with my dad and my brother. Uh, and it was, we were, we were on delay, obviously, because of iFollow and SkyGo. So it was it was phones away and, and kind of get off all that. 
it was um it was incredible it was it was going into i mean the, the difference is i think to be clear oxford won 4-0 yeah. against burton and because portsmouth lost 1-0 to accrington oxford nicked pompey's playoff I think, place i think when you're when you're going into a game of such massive magnitude where you, where you might spend the last 20 minutes feeling sick and kind of hopping around the place you, that's normally been preceded by a morning of of nerves and a knowledge that this is massive whilst obviously yesterday was big you know i went into it fully not expecting for there even to be much drama you know it, it felt like it was asking quite a lot for it to get there and burton started you know burton obviously one of the form teams in the division I was quite heartened when I saw their team come out, I must say. I texted you saying, quite a weird Burton team. This, you know, Sean Clare couldn't play because of the loan. Mm. Uh, Edwards was out. Hemmings was on the bench. Fond up up front. It just didn't really feel like their strongest side. Yeah. Uh, they started very well, though, and were on top in the first 10 minutes. But it felt like Carl had... Carl Robinson, who was serving a, he's serving a four-match touchline ban for what happened at Sunderland. So he's not going to be involved in, um, in any of the playoff games, I don't think. Well... He will be very involved he won't from be, the stands. He won't be in the dugout. Um, <laughs> might not be the worst thing. The idea of Carl Robinson not being involved in something <laughs> no, that's no. anywhere near him uh, or, or relates to him is, <laughs> is, uh, is a strange concept. Um, but he he got the tactics spot on. He knew that Burton were going to press. He knew that they were going to look to, you know, they weren't going to allow us any time on the ball. So it was a case of sit in and launch it, basically. Just sit in, either, either go long and turn them or look to break and break quickly. And that was how the goals came, the quick in transition, using the pace of Shadipo and, and Sykes. Sykes is brilliant. You know, I've been a somebody who has always thought with this Oxford team that Gorin is the most important player. But this little run of form to finish the season has happened with, without Gorin. It's happened with Brannigan playing as the deepest midfielder. <clears throat> and then Sykes just using, well, he's just matured positionally a lot now where quite often the ball was coming back to us and he would be the deepest midfielder. Something who something I, I didn't necessarily think I'd seen before, almost like a bit of a double pivot with, with Henry and Sykes either side of Brannigan. Um, and it worked really well. And it's given us, it's given Oxford a belief that they can basically score against anyone. And I know a lot of people looking ahead to the playoffs will argue that Oxford's record against teams in the top six is appalling this season. And yes, that's true. You know, the Lincoln game is the only one that we won and that was when they had four subs. Um, but I would say two things. Firstly, this Oxford side of the last, 10 games or so is very different. You know, the, the free scoring nature, the five attacking players that's on, you know, this isn't going to be an easy game for any of those teams. And also there's an argument which kind of goes back to what I was saying a second ago about, about Wickham and stuff where football isn't scientific. If anything, I would say that if you if a team has endured an abnormally long, bad stretch against teams between a certain bracket and the league table... It's probably pretty anomalous and probably because of variants it'll go the other way eventually um, because the, the, the quality gap. suggestion in our NTT20 squad chat that if there is a, a, a more prescriptive reason for it, it could be partially down to the style of play of the top teams, maybe not suiting Oxford in terms of um, Yellows not having a huge amount of pace in behind, for example. And so maybe teams with a higher line who maybe want to put a bit more pressure on, on the ball being played out in your defensive and middle thirds, that doesn't necessarily suit Oxford. And, and uh, that's kind of an interesting one. It might, it, that might be true. I mean, I think we played on the break yesterday with pace up front. So I think we have that in Shadipo and Sykes, definitely. I'd also say that having watched these games, you know, against Sunderland, we were the better side until um, until half time, where then we had the man sent off and it all went a bit skew if um 
against Peterborough in the away game early in the season. You know, it's not like the performances have been terrible. And as I say, even if that is true, it's you're just not going to be a football team who beats everybody below a certain level and then loses everybody above mm. it. It doesn't work like that. It is interesting that you've scored three goals or more 14 times in the League One season, which is the most in the division, but all of those against teams 10th or below. So, I mean, I, th- I think it's fairly compelling, but, but I, then, but, I do get what you're saying. But then saying. if you take like Burton over the last four months have been a team in the yeah. top 10. So, okay. I mean, I, I, you know, I know this is obviously going to sound, there will be 99% of people listening to this thinking, you know, he's a fan talking up his own game. But I, I, gen- I generally no think, there, then. I generally think in football, if you make sweeping, um, you know, if you make sweeping decisions based on, on trends, um, you can go very wrong because often that is just, you know, you're going to be on the receiving end of variance at the end of time. It's not the first time I've said that on this podcast and just because it's Oxford I'm not saying it this time on the Pompey game because let's stop talking about Oxford now because it's boring it was an unbelievable performance from from Accrington um, and you know I for the second half I was mainly watching this game obviously I mean firstly Adam Phillips put in an unbelievable first half performance beyond just the goal I mean he was basically running the whole game uh, Pompey couldn't really get near him He's, it was a brilliant finish for the first nearly scored a very good free kick as well I mean, I was going to say how he hasn't been getting in the, the Accrington side consistently. I don't understand, but they've been doing pretty well without him. So it's not like they've really needed him. He was excellent. And the second half, Pompey came out and I thought basically played really well. Um, they created a lot of chances. They were by far the better side in the second half. But Oxford owe a debt of gratitude to a young goalkeeper called T- Toby Savin, um, who was saving absolutely everything on the day. It was, you know, he's he's... I think he'll drink for free in Oxford for the rest of his life if he's old enough to um, because he was... You know, it wasn't where there was like one or two incredible saves. It was just everything that was thrown at him. He did he dealt with catching crosses, powering the ball away from goal. Crucially, a couple of shots that easily could have gone in that he managed to, to get away. He was... For Danny Cowley, it would have been one of those games where he'd have been frustrated knowing that in the biggest game of his team season... They came up against a keeper whose performance level was just way beyond anything else he had done this season. I agree that he was the key man in the second half. I wouldn't want to frame this as Pompey peppering Accrington and Accrington clinging on for dear life, though. It might have felt that to you because you had so much emotional investment in this game. But I thought Pompey were very poor. I thought Accrington looked fairly likely to score on the break as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Although clearly dropped off a bit in the second half. That was... That's just the way that the ebbs and flows of a game like this were going to go. I didn't feel like Pompey were cutting through them at will. Of, of course, they did have a couple of chances, as you say, that save and save. But I felt very let down by Pompey's performance. I've no doubt that their fans did as well. Uh, it's been a bit of a peculiar one, hasn't it, since the Cowleys came in? Because they won their first four games, all of them 2-1, um, or at least all of them by one goal. Some of the performances better than others. One month ago... Today, George, they were fourth and they were eight points ahead of Yellows with a game in hand. Now, I know that Oxford's run has been very, very good. Seven wins in their last 10. But Pompey's run of two wins, two draws and four defeats uh, in their last eight games. We don't throw around the word bottle job very often. But if there's anything in the EFL this season that gets close to it, it's this. And that's not the Cowleys have bottled it. And that's not necessarily the players have bottled it. But collectively... That's the biggest, for me, you were in a great position with a few weeks left of the season, with everything in your hands, and you conspired to throw it away. Now, interestingly, and you don't know this yet, while we've been talking, 
there's been some news about the Cowley brothers. Interesting. The Cowley brothers and Portsmouth party company will remain together nice. Good. for next season. I'm Your glad. thoughts, George Ellick. This is like a live news show now. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm happy. I think it's the right decision. Um, I think that they would they would struggle to get bring in managers or a manager who uh, has achieved um, what well maybe not achieve what Danny has done but I think he's somebody who has a very very high ceiling and I think having you know you and I have both work with him he's very very intelligent he's very very committed um, I have no doubt that he is going to be somebody who manages higher than League One and if you're if you're hiring a manager that's kind of all you want because you're going to hope that you know they're going to hit their ceiling with you and take you there so yeah I think that's good news just on on yesterday just because I felt like I wanted to check if I was actually going mad like there were you know second half it was 12 shots to one and five of those pompey shots were on target and the one but the one good save in fairness to saving as well was the uh charlie daniels was kind of through one on one um it was again one of those where in my opinion it should probably be a penalty because he was completely wiped out yeah. after he shot um but saving kind of dive one way and then used his top hand to parry it because because daniels went straight um but i think there's for, for pompey as well could there be an argument to say and this could be the case, I think, with Oxford too, that they might be might be better off seeing in a new era in League One. You know, if if they if they somehow squirmed into the playoffs yesterday, you know, they got two late goals, having not played great, and then got in the playoffs, managed to worm their way through. Suddenly, with Danny Cowley, a manager who's you know had a bit of management time in Huddersfield, but not really, having to recruit Championship players immediately in his first summer, I feel like there is an opportunity for Portsmouth to get promoted from League One next season as a far, far better football team and be better equipped than they are now. The most extreme response to a Pompey tweet I saw yesterday was a fan saying, release all of them. And I think the general sense among Pompey fans is that they are pleased the Cowley brothers will take charge next season and they want the, the slate to be wiped clean in terms of the squad. Now, when Colin put clean slate to me last night on quest i did say to what extent there is a difference i don't know for me the word would be a refreshment of the squad rather than clean slate um they haven't been good enough this season if you look at the squad there are a number of players who have been at the club for at least the last two seasons some of them the last three where they have been quite close to achieving their goal of promotion they finished eighth fourth uh fifth uh, and now just outside the playoffs in in uh, seventh or eighth was it I can't remember off the top of my head uh, with Charlton's win but uh, I mean there are still some good players in there but I think in all areas of the pitch they could do with some refreshment um, they need a much more reliable and varied goal threat not just the case of buying a better number nine but improving the style of play to get more players um, threatening the goal rather than just relying a little bit on the individual quality of a of a, a Curtis or a, a Harness, perhaps. So lots of work to be done because defensively, I've not been impressed at all either. They need to improve, improve their home fan, uh, uh, their home record. And I'm sure they'll be one of those teams that feels like with their fans in the stadium and what Fratton Park's like when it's buzzing, that will be much more of a bonus for them next season. I find that hard to measure at this stage, but um, but I'm willing to accept it. So, um, yeah, I'm feeling positive. You know, we were going to record this not knowing the Cowley's future and, and therefore we would have kind of had to caveat everything, but we know that they will be in charge now and I expect them to be challenging towards the top of the table. I probably expect Charlton to do the same. They're a classic case, aren't they, of 
if the league was two or three games longer, maybe Charlton would have would have punched their way in. Maybe not because, of course, Oxford were on such good form as well. But they beat Hull. They did what they needed to do. Sadly, results didn't fall their way. For Nigel Adkins, having taken over when Lee Bowyer left for Birmingham, it's 19 point, points from 10 games. But they've also beaten three of the teams at the very top of the table. They've been impressive, if not incredible. And I think another team for whom the fans might think, actually, with this manager in charge, with a proper summer, without anything going on off the field, much more focused recruitment than they were able to do last season. Another team who have just missed out on the playoffs. I can't see a reason why they would be way further down the table next season than they were this time around. No, I, I think the proof is going to be in, in, in the recruitment again. You know, we've, we've got a new owner in Thomas Sangard who, who obviously talks a very good game. The recruitment in January, um, in hindsight, was pretty good. Yeah. You know, you look at the impact that uh, that Jaden Stockley made. You look at, especially later on in the season, um, Miller and, and Jayasimi too, um, suggests that they know what they're looking for. Interesting that it's kind of very... You know, a player in, in Stockley who, you know, has done it in, you know, he's an EFL player uh, in same with Jayasimi and then in Miller, a kind of a sharp academy pickup. It suggests that, um, you know, and we know that Steve Gallen, who's been in charge of recruitment there before, um, he's somebody who's done pretty well with, given all the off-field issues they've had, that if he is going to get the support from Thomas Sangard, the, the new owner, then it should be pretty, pretty good. And in Nigel Atkins, they have a manager who, you know, it was when we, when Jake Forskaski was, was on the, the live interview when we were on Sky Sports News, he was very, very quick to, to talk about the positivity that, that Atkins has brought to the club, which is no surprise to anybody who knows him. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard to see why they wouldn't be a good force. And I think we're going to know, because they are, they are feasibly a team, without us knowing who could be money bags. They could be the side to go out and, and really spend in League One next season, or maybe the pockets aren't that deep. We, we basically don't know the intention of, of the kind of the market they're going to be shopping in. Um, so they are a side who it feels to me right now could easily go off favourites basically for League One next season or could just be one of those teams in the mix. League One is looking pretty spicy next season, if I'm honest. I'm excited about that. The, the playoff picture is this. Oxford will play Blackpool over two legs uh, and Lincoln will play Sunderland. Oxford's game is on the Tuesday uh, and Lincoln-Sunderland on the Wednesday. Uh, we are purposefully not giving away anything, really, in terms of our thoughts on those games and who might win the playoffs because we're holding that back for what we think and hope will be a really in-depth and definitive uh, playoff preview for all three leagues. One separate episode for each league coming out second half of the week so please stay tuned for that we'd love your support with those um those are big pods for us because the playoffs are a big thing not just for EFL fans but for the wider footballing community I think this is where a lot of people who maybe don't focus as much between sort of September and May um tune back in and so for us it's uh, really important to to get as many new listeners as possible heading into to uh, the summer and into next season a couple of notes from the beach Crew snuck into the top half on final day, um, beating Shrews 3-2. They finished the highest of the four League 2 promoted teams last season, which is very impressive. We thought all four teams were, were pretty good in League 2 last season, certainly those three automatic teams. So congrats to Crew. They move on from Harry Pickering, uh, who played his last game, of course, NG having left in January. And we look forward to seeing whether the likes of Travis Johnson, Rio Adebisi, uh, Luke Offord maybe, uh, and then some of those others like Ainley and Lowry and, and Owen Dale 
I've no doubt we'll be talking about them in the same sort of terms as we talked about Pickering and NG if their development continues in the same way that those two players did. Uh, Rochdale beat MK Dons to wave goodbye to their time in League One. Uh, classic MK, really, finishing the season with their goalkeeper passing the ball straight to an opposition striker and conceding a goal. Scott Twine did Scott Twine things in a crazy game at Wigan, lost 3-4. 3-4? Swindon beat Wigan 4-3. Scott Twine scored a free kick and another goal from outside the box to make it 14 goals and 11 assists this season across his League 2 loan with Newport uh, and League 1 with Swindon. Uh, contract up in the summer, mightily impressive first proper season in the EFL across two divisions and really interested to see what happens to him this summer. And we said farewell to James Coppinger, didn't we, as, a, as an EFL player, George? Surely one of the most iconic over the last 17 years, maybe 20 years, really. He's been at, at, at uh, Donny for 17 of them. Um, uh, a sub, Ben Blythe, came on for Donny, became the 262nd Donny player to play alongside Coppinger. There are so many stats, but I think that was my favourite one. Uh, and here's the final League One table. Hull champions, Peterborough second. They will be in the championship next year. Joining them will be one of Blackpool, Sunderland, Lincoln and Oxford. Just outside the playoff places on goal difference was Charlton in seventh and then Pompey two points back in eighth. We then had Ipswich, Gills and Accrington and Crewe uh, finishing off the top half. MK Dons and Donny in 13th and 14th. Then a bit of a points gap to Fleetwood in 14th. Burton 16th, Shrewsbury 17th, Plymouth Argyle dropped all the way to 18th after a poor end to the season. AFC Wimbledon and Wigan were 19th and 20th and then that dotted line which sees Rochdale, Northampton and Swindon as well as Bristol Rovers move down to League 2 next season. In League 2, George, Hello. we did want drama because we always want drama and that's allowed. We cover these leagues closely as neutrals and... Neutrals love Johnny drama. But we didn't really get it, did we? The the potential party poopers did no pooping. Yeah. Um, Cambridge and Bolton just eased to victory against Grimsby and, um, and Crawley. I think there was probably 10 minutes early on in, the very, in a very blustery Abbey Stadium where it looked like Grimsby might make it quite awkward for, for Cambridge, but that just didn't really... Um, wasn't really the case. Morecambe did their bit by... Putting the pressure on, but by the time they were tuning up, both Cambridge and Bolton were kind of out of sight and Bolton were helped by a George Franken red card that kind of made their two-goal lead pretty easy to build upon. Uh, they ended up winning 4-1. Amazing, though. I mean, this is the thing. It's just, I think, because we, we want the drama, because we are there hoping for there to be some jeopardy on final day, it can often get lost that Cambridge have, have done it. And it's just an incredible achievement by a rookie manager in Mark Bonner in his first full season. Of, of the seven automatically promoted clubs, this is the this is the one, isn't it? This, this is, is the, the best one. I think so. Um, because so many parts to this are kind of surprising. Not Wes Houlihan playing a big part, although I think that's probably one of the worst goals he's ever scored on, on Saturday. <laughs> a kind of an attempted cross. I just don't understand how it went in, but, but go in, it did. Um, Paul Mullen scoring as many goals this season as he has in his last five seasons um, was a bit of a surprise. I don't think anybody really saw that coming. Never hit double figures before this. The season. fact that he was—he's a striker who was two hundred to one to be top goal scorer in Amazing. League Two um, suggests everything you need to know there. The only winning bet on Paul Mullen to be top scorer that I've seen was his brother who posted so his bet that. slip on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's—it's—it's it's, it's an amazing achievement. And, and fully deserved for them. Mark Bonner signed a new three-year contract this morning. No surprises there. Um, so Did you know that he was, I think you know, but I'm not sure all the listeners will know, 
Uh, he was a Cambridge United season ticket holder as a boy. Uh, they had some pretty famous teams, uh, especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, when he would have been going. Uh, Trevor Benjamin springs to mind, Tom Youngs, uh, players like that. Dion Dublin, of course, as well. There's something so romantic in footballing terms. And I think for all of us who are such strong fans, uh, at the thought of being a, especially someone who didn't play the game professionally, being a season ticket holder of your local club and leading them to promotion to the third tier for the first time in a couple of decades, aged only 35, having never played the game professionally. That's like some video game stuff. He's living the dream. There you go. He is, you know, we, we often think we're living the dream. I think Mark Bonner is actually living the dream of being not an ex-player who gets to go manage his, his, his boyhood club. Well, what about when I worked alongside Mark Bonner that was your last dream, week was it? at Quest? That was two dreams colliding there. <laughs> um, only four or five teams had longer odds for, for promotion than Cambridge. And I think that's worth remembering because, of course, they started really strongly and they've been there or thereabouts all season. And maybe over time, you know, the narrative slightly changes because of that. Um, and everyone sort of forgets that pre-season with the squad that they had outside of Houlihan, there wasn't anyone that you thought, yes, that, that's a proper match winner at this level with a rookie manager that we that we simply didn't know very much about. Didn't even have a wiki, wiki page, did he, at the start of the season? And now has an honours section on it, which a lot of managers in the EFL don't have after many more seasons than just one. Can't wait to see how they go in, in League One next season. Um, interested to see what will happen with Mullin when someone scores that amount of goals. Someone always wants to buy them, and quite often it's someone who shouldn't really buy well, them. I've seen he's been linked to Plymouth already, okay, and Bristol Rovers, which would seem a weird one. Interesting. I was wondering if there might even be a championship club, a championship club who fancies it. I, 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 I mean, as I say it, I'm not sure that would be right. But do you know what I mean? Like, if when someone hits 30 plus, I'd be quite surprised if Plymouth went in for him. Like, if Argyle as a, as a club who you know we know that their recruitment is quite data driven, go like, yeah, he scored 32 goals in uh, in uh, League Two. Let's get him. Maybe, maybe, but they do create a lot of chances, Argyle, and maybe yeah. Mullen could just go again. Um, an amazing achievement, and look, there's almost like outside of Bonner, Houlihan, and Mullen, you don't really know where to go next. They've had a number of other key players. Uh, Kyle Noyle made it into our League Two team of the season, and the official one as well. Uh, at right back, the amount that he does, both going forward and defensively, the fact that he's barely missed a minute all season, he's a really interesting player, and I think he certainly deserves to be playing League One football next season as well. As the rest of the squad, a Bolton beat Crawley 4-1. Yemsey's boys really rolled over and had their tummy tickled here, didn't they? Um, but it does mean <laughs> Bolton won 16 of their last 22 games. Uh, Went yeah. from 19th just over three months ago to automatic promotion. I think, and we are definitely at fault here as well, I think if, if any other club had done what Bolton had done, we would be doing cartwheels about it. Yeah. And because they're the pre-season favourites, because they were kind of expected to do this by many. And because I guess the manner of it, where it has been so many 1-0 wins and kind of marginal victories, maybe it hasn't got the credit it deserves. And I think because Ian Everett, despite being um, a manager having his first season in the EFL, because he came with quite a big reputation from Barrow and all this Barrow-Salona stuff and all this, I don't think I can remember a manager um, coming up with such expectation like if you look at what they've actually done Simon Weaver is a more experienced manager than Ian Everett who has who has done more in his career yet Everett was being judged at like a far higher level because of of, of basically one season with Barrow so 
I think sometimes you've got to step back and look at what Everett's done. I think often a great manager or a good manager, you can tell in how they respond to adversity. I think it's fair to say that initially he didn't respond very well. The way that he dealt with a disappointing start to the season was bad. You know, he hung his players out to dry. He was pretty abrasive in the media. It didn't really work for me, you know, and he was saying stuff like, we're the, you know, we're the best team in this division when they were 15th. Now that might look quite clever now, but I don't think it was very clever at the time. And I loved on, on Gillette on Saturday so many times. So like basically in all Bolton coverage at that time, it was best team in the league. I don't think so. Clinton, final day. You never said they're the best team in the league. Well, yeah, they probably are. Very, very clever thing. You know, they're, they've improved their performance level and they've got the results they needed to get here. And it deserves immense credit, immense credit. Um, I'm excited to see what they're going to do next season. I don't think the recruitment was that great last summer. Um, so well, there I'm, was a director of football in charge who was not in charge in the, quite in, specifically in January. Yeah, uh, And I think there's a lot of positivity around the club that potentially if Everett has a bit more say in things, um, yeah. you know, with the right people supporting him, uh, then they could have a slightly better window than they would have done last summer. Because yeah. that, that was it, wasn't it? Last summer was because of the name of the club and where they've been recently and, and perceived finances... Uh, and Owen Doyle, they were priced up as favourites to win the division. And when we looked at the squad on paper, we found it quite difficult to understand why everyone was so excited. Um, Now you look at the first 11, specifically with some of those players that joined in January, the likes of Declan John and Kieran Lee and Afalayan, and it makes a lot more sense. Mm. Uh, And and certainly that back five, Jilks, uh, Jones, Santos, Baptiste and Declan John, they've been magnificent in Penetratable, which was a word I made up on uh, yeah. Sky Sports. I thought it was impenetrable. Impenet- I thought it was impenetrable. <laughs> yeah. Great start, great start. I want to give a nod to the Bolton Wanderers board as well, because Lord knows they had a lot of charlatans running that club for a long time, uh, and that's why they ended up in League Two, rather than uh, towards the top end of the English game where they'd spent so long. Uh, and they're on their way back now. Uh, Sharon Britton uh, and the team that run the club with her deserve a lot of credit because they haven't just come in, thrown money at it. They are building the infrastructure. They're going to have a big role to play in the community as well. A lot of things that get lost when poor owners ruin football clubs, they're starting to build those back up as well as achieving success on the pitch. And they should get a lot of credit. Um, Owen Doyle and Lloyd Isgrove, lastly, back-to-back promotions last season, both of them with Swindon Town and now with Bolton Wanderers. I do wonder if Doyle might just be like, Anyone in League Two want to pay me tons of money? Do you reckon he calls Joey Barton at Bristol Rovers and goes, hi, mate, I hear you're in for Paul Mullen. Me, actually. Is Owen Doyle to Salford the most predictable transfer of the summer? Yes, I can't. It's it's the Premier League version of I can't believe he hasn't played for them already. <laughs> like How how has that not happened before? Um, Cheltenham champions, uh, that was confirmed on the weekend. And it feels right, I think. Um, it's funny, though, because we love Mike Duff. We've loved Mike Duff for a long time. I feel very justified in banging on so much earlier this season, specifically about how I trusted Cheltenham to get the job done more than any other team, by which I meant I trusted them to be consistent in their performance levels over the course of 46 games and that they'd win promotion and win enough games. And yet, and I don't want to talk badly about a team that have just been crowned champions, they probably haven't been as good as I thought they'd be. They've been good. 82 points is a very low winning tally. That doesn't mean they are a bad champion. It could mean that the league is harder than usual. And of course, the tough conditions that teams have had 
with uh, COVID this year has probably meant that any sort of consistency has been very difficult to find. But they probably haven't been as good as I thought they would be, um, Cheltenham, this season. That We know that they have eked out so many points from the long throw. And while while that is as valid as scoring from any other manner, I guess I thought they'd be a little bit better uh, in general play. Um, and so it'd be interesting to see what sort of shape they'll be in in League One next season. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. But I just feel like they're never going to be a side who dominate in the way that you'd kind of expect a champion to, I guess. You know, they are functional to the max. And that is not an insult at all. They are just a side who, I know, kind of repeating myself, they're a side who don't give up many chances, who don't play long ball but don't really keep it either, who find ways to create chances from open play and set pieces, who are fairly clinical and have a pretty consistent performance level. Like that in itself isn't going to write headlines, but it gets you football points. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know all that. And that's why it's like there were just times this season where they they were winless in seven in December and January, drawing five, losing two. They they didn't have any like they were they were, put it this way. When you rate a team that highly and they lose to teams that you don't think they should lose to, you feel a bit disappointed. And there was always one of those defeats around the corner, generally for Cheltenham this season. Yeah. Um. And I really don't mean that to knock them. It's just something that I I noted and therefore wanted to say yeah, yeah. and have this platform to Absolutely. say. I am delighted for them. Um, I can't think of a League Two club over the last three seasons that's de- deserved promotion quite as much as them and, and Michael Duff. So can't wait to see how they go next season. Um, the playoffs, again, nothing changed in terms of uh, the four teams who started the weekend in the playoff places. Uh, Morecambe won as we knew they would. They did their bit, but sadly results didn't go for them. Exeter were kind of the disappointing ones. They they failed to beat Barrow, but it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Even if they'd won, they wouldn't have made it into the playoffs. Tranmere drawing 0-0 and Newport drawing 1-1 secured their spots in what were pretty underwhelming performances. Uh, and Forest Green beat Oldham, uh, ended up comfortably after being very poor in the first half. So we've got Morecambe versus Tranmere and Forest Green against Newport. There's something, I don't want to, because we'll talk about this in the, in the playoff preview, but I just... I mean, firstly, what we should say, because people have been asking us on Twitter why Newport are playing at home in the second tie. Um, and it's because they're relaying their pitch. So that is why there's been a flip there. Can you not just imagine at Wembley, if it is going to be Wembley, because at the time of recording, there's all these rumours about the Champions League final being moved to Wembley, in which case the playoff finals could be kind of geographically scattered, depending on who's playing in them. But can you imagine Morecambe-Newport on a big like Premier League pristine pitch? Mm. I mean, what possession stats would you anticipate there? I mean, 75, 25. <laughs> yeah. That's my starter for 10. Max. Like, it just feels like that would be Newport just gleefully knocking it around the back whilst Morecambe just sit off and wait to pounce. to pounce. I, I mean, it would be, I would love it. I think it's probably the most likely. That's a little preview for you. Um, yeah, for Morecambe, they were, they were pretty good again. You know, they put in that... That performance that we're so used to where they, they didn't have much of the ball, but every time they had it, they seemed to look pretty dangerous. Lovely reverse pass by Carlos Mendes Gormes, yes. who was back in the team, which is a positive for them ahead of the playoffs. God, I love him. It feels like they are going to have players back ready for that first game. They are in fine fettle. And normally, I am worried about sides who just miss out. But I I just don't... I, I think it, it was never on on Saturday, basically, for them. So they didn't have that heartbreak. Um, the fans and the players and everyone is so delighted just to be there despite the near miss of automatic promotion. I think they're going to be absolutely fine. But just saying they're delighted to be there, I think 
conjures up an image of like oh they're like we don't care like this is no, so it's nice they it's are just, like yeah locked in as exactly well. no no they're delighted as in they are relishing it yeah. rather than it's not just like oh we're here to make up the numbers they are bang up for it well, and they're, they the, are, they're the best team of the four and they're loving it yeah um Tramir are just limping over the line i think Tramir fans i disagree with this but i think Tramir fans would largely be happy if keith hill was was dispensed of and they brought in a new manager just for the playoffs i can't remember a team going into the playoffs with this bad a vibe as, yeah. as Tramir Rovers. It's, yeah. it's bizarre, isn't it? And then you've got Forest Green Newport and you know I love stuff like this and most people don't care at all. But Battle of the Brothers, Lewis Collins, nice. he's been playing up top for Newport, pacey yeah. young striker, raw. And his older brother, of course, Aaron Collins, Azza. In the as goals on, on Saturday. One of my least favourite nicknames in the EFL, I could, Azza. I, I could call you Azza, Azza yeah. Maxwell. Uh, that's why I hate it. Um, he scored two and really basically needs to fill the Jamil Matt void in the playoffs. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the Collins brothers derby is how I'll be framing that one. We'll, we'll, yeah, I mean, we'll go into these massively, I guess, in, our, in our preview. I mean, the, I'm not the, saying any more. The only two to talk about are Salford and Exeter, who finish the season, you know, talking about other ways of, of judging teams' performance over the season. And goal difference tells its own story because a league table doesn't really tell you anything about a team's... Um, actual dominance or, or 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 the other side of things within games you know a 1-0 counts for the same as a 5-0 but looking at goal difference can tell you how a performance level can shift in terms of how much they actually put past teams and the fact that Salford and Exeter sit there in 8th and ninth with a goal difference of 20 and 21 Bolton for example plus 9 Morecambe plus 11 shows you I'm not saying they should have gone in the playoffs but it does show you that they are doing something right and I'd expect them both to be pretty strong next season Notes from the beach are sparse, to be honest. Mansfield beat Port Vale uh, in the Daryl Clark derby. Uh, that's because he was born and used to support Mansfield and he's now the manager of Port Vale. 3-0 win for the Stags. Uh, what else was there? Not a lot, just a lot of draws. And you know I hate those. Stevenage beat Scunthorpe. There you go. That's something that happened uh, on the weekend. Elliot List finishing a strong season strongly. Uh, Stevenish didn't quite make it into the top half, which I hoped they would, um, but only one point off, uh, ended up with a level goal difference. And, well, one of the form teams in the league over the last few months, a team to watch next season for sure. Uh, and Joby McEnough retired, George. I mean, because he played at the very top level, possibly, oh, and he played in the National League, of course, with Leighton Orient. It maybe feels like less of an obvious EFL-specific legend compared to James Coppinger. But, the most unbelievable career, especially for someone who plays in the position that he played as a young player, um, to have played 38 games in the 2001-2002 season in what was the championship and to play 33 games in the 2021-22 season should be hugely applauded. I think what I wanted to say about Joby is how much of an inspiration he should be to any young footballer of any ability because I think we all have this idea of what a, a player's potential ability is, what their ceiling is, where a player should spend the majority of their career. But careers are very short. And there's also something that we have, I think, and that's kind of a cultural thing, that if you're a player that plays at the top level, or let's say the championship, and you get to 34, that instead of dropping down the leagues and playing for another few seasons, you should almost sort of retire rather than do yourself the injustice of, of dropping down a division or two as if that is some huge issue or insult to your ability. Yeah. Joby McEnough's like, professionalism to extend his career another five, six years longer than most people should be 
incredibly well it should be inspirational for any young professional any professional halfway through their career thinking about how they'd like to end it anyone who is currently 33 34 35 and is facing questions about like oh is it time to retire talk to Joby McEnough because he's one of the nicest blokes we've ever met and worked with he's unbelievably like driven determined professional he communicates well his thoughts and I think as much as we're excited to see his managerial career, wherever that may be and wherever that may take him next season, Orient or not, uh, I think that is where he blows my mind, what he's been able to do. And just as an aside, he played one season in the Premier League with Reading. They got relegated. He got something like seven or eight assists, which for a player in a, in a team getting relegated, pretty impressive indeed. Yeah, great man. We've loved working with him as well. Um, you know, you say he's not an EFL legend necessarily in the same way that Coppinger is now, but I have a feeling his time in the EFL whether that is on our screens or in the dugout probably isn't over Um, I'm excited to see the next chapter absolute legend all right that's it from us Uh, the final day recap I hope that we have covered as much as we could Um, notes from the beach I'm sorry guys I know that many of you whose teams weren't involved in quote-unquote important games this weekend might have wanted a little bit more but honestly we did 40 weeks of the Monday pod and we like to think that over those 40 weeks or so um, we cover uh, all teams we can't obviously cover all teams in exactly the same depth and there might be a bit of a blind spot in those mid-table teams at times but hopefully you've enjoyed our general uh, weekend review Monday pod coverage this season let's wait and see what it looks like next season could be some changes for us could all stay the same we haven't decided yet we're going to take a bit of a break after the playoffs and we'll decide more then but we hope you've enjoyed this final day recap pod we really would love you to join us for the playoff previews we're so excited about all three divisions the matchups the narratives the potential drama and I think we're probably going to go fairly head-to-head with some of our predictions, some of our picks. Um, the second half of the week is where you'll find a playoff preview show for each division. There will be a betting aspect to it as well. You guys know that we like to keep the general content and the betting content separate. When it comes to the playoffs, for us, they do kind of go hand-in-hand to an extent. It's something that we're interested in. So there will be proper match analysis and there'll also be some betting discussion as part of those previews. So please join us for that. Thank you for listening. Have a great start to the week and we'll talk again soon.